Amen. What beautiful worship and what a privilege to be here and to hear our ensemble leading us. Thank you, Dan, and and choir ensemble for those songs and for your encouragement to us this evening. We continue together in our study in the book of Acts, with Acts chapter 21 as our text this evening. So if you've got a Bible in front of you or a device where you can pull your Bible out, I'd encourage you to find Acts chapter 21 and to leave it open as we make our way, as we have been, uh, verse by verse through this book of Acts. You know, there are many stories in the Bible, characters, that you could guess if I gave you the details of their narrative. You know, characters that are so connected with certain parts of their story or certain aspects of their life that if I named a few of their characteristics, you would immediately know who I was talking about. If, for example, I, I talked about a young baby found in a basket in the river who grew up to hold a staff used by God and lead pe- God's people out of slavery in Egypt, you'd know I was talking about Moses. Or if I talked about a young boy who was gifted a coat and sold by his brother and only to rise to Pharaoh's court and protect a whole nation, you'd know of Joseph coming to mind. Or maybe simpler characters like a a man who climbs a tree and then hosts Jesus in his house and then pays back what he's stolen. You would think of Zacchaeus without me even saying he was short. In tonight's passage, Acts chapter 21, centers around a few details that might sound familiar. If I told you about a story where the Jews plotted to kill or to charge a threat that was rising, that there were going to be three warnings or predictions of coming suffering, and yet this main character, this man would make a a steadfast commitment to be faithful even in the midst of persecution and even facing death. If I told you about a man whose closest friends would try to talk him out of journeying to Jerusalem where evil was waiting for him, and yet in agony and testing the will of God, he would resign himself to follow God even unto death. Who might I be talking about? Now given those details, you might have thought of a passage about Jesus, about the passion narrative itself. Because here in Acts chapter 1, Luke is connecting the dots for us in ways that he hasn't yet. He's beginning to tell us about Paul's own journey to Jerusalem. And he's doing so in ways that connect Paul's journey to Jerusalem even with Jesus's. Now, spoiler alert, Luke is aware that Paul doesn't die in Jerusalem, and I hope you are too. In fact, it's not really the ultimate end. This is not where Paul's story will end up. He's headed all the way to Rome. But here in Acts chapter 21, Paul is pointed to Jerusalem. And Luke begins giving us this story in ways that mirror many of the details of Jesus' own trek up to Jerusalem. William Willimon tells the story of a pastor who was leading in communion the Lord's Supper with, with his congregation. Standing before them, as was their tradition in this congregation, the the bread and the cup were on a table and the pastor stood behind it preparing to serve the elements to the people. He enacted and and reenacted that last supper event. He took the bread off the table and broke it. He took the wine and poured it in the cup. The pastor spread his hands out 
one arm stretched to his left and the other arm stretched to his right and began to offer a blessing over the people before he distributed the elements. When all of a sudden a child, about halfway back, seeing the gesture, cried out, Look, Mom, he's trying to look like Jesus on the cross. That's not a bad thing to say about a Christian, is it? And Paul would probably welcome that kind of accusation. And it seems to be at least in part what Luke is doing. He's painting a picture of Paul's own life, his journey to Jerusalem in ways that make you step back and say, wow, this looks familiar. This sounds familiar. So Acts chapter 21 begins with this travel narrative. And it can start to sound a little bit like somebody recounting a boring road trip that you weren't a part of and don't have a whole lot of interest in knowing the details of. But if we listen close, if we, if we look at these details, many of them teach us not just about Christian fellowship and life and community and, and the state of the church at this point in history, but they challenge us in our commitment to forgiveness and faith and to love. So we begin in chapter 21, having completed this journey from Miletus, in Acts we hear, we read in verse 1 of 21, that when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And when we found a ship bound for Phoenicia, we went on board and set sail. We came in sight of Cyprus, and leaving it on our left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, because the ship was to unload its cargo there. We looked up the disciples and stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So as the travel narrative resumes in chapter 21, we get to the third of four we sections in the book of Acts. We've talked about them up to this point, those sections where Luke begins using the first person plural pronoun, including himself in the dialogue, knowing he was there. The next one will come later on in chapter 27, but here more than a dozen times in the first 12 verses of chapter 21, Luke will use that first-person plural, we, including himself. And so he describes their journey from Miletus to Tyre in detail, from port to port. Evidently, they took this coasting vessel, a smaller ship from Miletus. Their first stopping place was Kos, an island that's off the Asian mainland, about 40 miles south of Miletus. The next day they traveled to the island of Rhodes and, and put in at its main city, which is also called Rhodes. And so we read as the coasting vessel took the next day to Patara and on to the Lycian mainland. And since this ship isn't big enough for the full journey they have ahead of them, they find a, a bigger seagoing vessel in order to make the direct journey to Phoenicia. Now this journey here from Patara to Tyre was approximately 400 miles. We know that this would have taken, by other accounts, something like five days with favorable winds. Tyre was not a small port. It was a, a major port, a merchant traffic area between Asia and Palestine. And it was natural that Paul's ship would unload its cargo there. And so it becomes a place where they stay, we're told, for seven days. And we get some good Greek verbiage here to let us know they didn't know 
the Christians at Tyre before, they had to look them up, my translation says. Yours might say, seek them out. I imagine they went over to one of those red British phone booths and got out that yellow book and licked their thumb and started turning the page. And during this visit, the Tyrian Christians, it says, through the Spirit, urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And we've already heard, look back to chapter 20, verse 23, beginning in 22. And now as a captive of the Spirit, Paul said, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Verse 23 of chapter 20, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and persecutions are waiting for me. So Paul knows and has known for some time, and he can't help but being reminded, in every city he goes to, they keep telling him persecution waits, and Tyre is no different. It's interesting that the Spirit, we're told, is testifying to believers in different cities, relaying the same message to Paul. The problem, of course, is that they are receiving from the Spirit uh, some message about what will happen to him there. They're communicating it to him as you should not go there. Paul, however, knows the other side of that coin. That on the one hand, yes, trials and persecution await him in Jerusalem, but the Spirit has already told him to go. The Spirit has alerted him to the fact that imprisonment and hardships awaited him in Jerusalem, and he seems fixed on going there anyway. And verse 5 says, When our days there were ended, we left and proceeded on our journey. And all of them, and remember, they had to look them up. They had to seek them out. They didn't know them seven days ago, but all of them, verse 5 says, with wives and children escorted us outside the city. And there, outside the city, we knelt down on the beach and prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship and they returned home. Much like his departure from Miletus here, he's Paul's departing Tyre, and you can't help but see the emotional scene that's taking place here. This is no wave goodbye. The the whole family marches with them down to the beach to watch them get on the boat. In fact, it's one of the only references to children in the book of Acts. I picture a mother with one child on her hip and a toddler holding the fingers of her other hand. The whole community of believers, followers of the way, go to bid farewell to Paul. This beautiful picture of the early church community. In 2005, uh, former President George H.W. Bush served as the engineer briefly aboard a brand new locomotive. It was called Bush 4141, a Union Pacific locomotive commissioned in his honor. It had an Air Force One symbol painted on the side, named after him. It was uh, quite the train. In fact, Bush said in 2005 while engineering it, if I had one of these when I was president, I might have left Air Force One behind. Well, it would not be too many years later, in 2018, you'll remember just 
a short while ago, in November of that year, at the age of 94, George H.W. Bush passed away. He was carried from Washington to Texas aboard Air Force One after his uh, funeral ceremonies, but on Thursday afternoon of that week, the plane was abandoned in favor of simpler, slower accommodations. Bush 4141. That personalized locomotive departed Union Pacific Railroad Westfield Auto Facility for its 70-mile journey to College Station, where Bush was buried at his presidential library. You may remember along the way, mourners lined the tracks and bid farewell. They joined in what has become a somewhat of a somber tradition for U.S. presidents. It, it dates back all the way to Abraham Lincoln's funeral. Now, it's been five presidential funerals before Bush uh, that did not include riding the rails. In fact, Bush's funeral train procession was the first since 1969 when Eisenhower was taken by railroad from Washington to his burial place in Kansas. But in this somber tradition, people began lining the railways of this transportation system. It became somewhat of a ceremonial departure for presidents. One historian said the train was the way to bring people closure. It gave ordinary people that opportunity to say goodbye. Ordinary Americans couldn't drop everything and come to Washington for a week. It was much more personal, beyond a photograph, beyond just reading it in a newspaper. Now, Paul hasn't died yet. This isn't a funeral procession. And like I said, he won't die in Jerusalem. But these people know this is the last time they will see him. It's funny, goodbyes aren't like that often anymore. We kind of have the illusion of being infinite that surely at some point we'll be able to make our way back to certain people in other places. Even mission trips across the world or other places in other countries, you say goodbye thinking, maybe I'll see you again. But they knew this was it. Paul wasn't coming back. And families are gathered on the beach, much like they might have waved at a train carrying by a late president. They're waving at Paul's ship in this case, sailing off to the next place, a scene filled with emotion, kneeling on the soft sand of the beach, praying together. Now, the fellowship Paul enjoys at many stops of his journey proves true the, the maxim written by William Barclay that the man who is in the family of the church has friends all over the world. The man who is in the family of the church has friends all over the world. It wasn't but a few days ago, we were straightening things up for our four-year-old son, reminding him that we had a few cousins that he'd played with, and they were a part of his family. And then these friends that we were talking about that he knew from preschool, well, they're actually not part of our family. And, of course, he corrected his parents as he's so good at doing. But they're a part of our church family, so it's the same. It is the same church family. And I hope it's the same for you too. Paul seems to testify and the early Christian community understood that whatever they might have known about genetics or biological family, there was a family in the spirit that superseded all of that. So much so that these people, everywhere he goes, seem to know about the trouble he's headed for. And William Willimon writes that the church has become a countercultural, global network of communities caring for their own subversive missionaries 
who are now traveling to and fro throughout the empire. This is not just a boring road trip. It is a a family gathering at each stop he makes. And on Paul goes in verse 7. When we'd finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived in Ptolemais and we were greeted and we greeted the believers and stayed with them for one day. And the next day we left and came to Caesarea. And we went into the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now we're headed for some drama in Jerusalem, as I've mentioned. Those events are probably more illustrious. They're given more words and maybe more moving because it's a lot of action here in a few verses. But this little verse stops me in my tracks more than any other verse in this chapter. We've heard of Philip before. Do you remember him? Luke wants to make sure you remember him. That's why he gives him three titles. He's an evangelist, of course. He's also, we're told, reminded here, one of the seven. Now, what seven are those? You'll remember them back from Acts chapter 6. They are the companions of Stephen. The six chosen in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. Stephen and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas and the a proselyte of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Philip is a known commodity, and Paul was already familiar with the Christian community in Caesarea that we encounter here. It had a magnificent harbor, a city built by Herod the Great, a port of Jerusalem and Judea, but it's the people. Philip became his host on this occasion. And as we meet back up with Philip here, Luke's careful to remind us he's an evangelist and he's one of the seven. And it's at that moment we might remember the chain of events that has led us to this point in the book of Acts, coming full circle. Remember, it was Stephen's death, his martyrdom at the hands of Jewish authorities with their coats sitting at the feet of of Saul that led to Philip's persecution immediately thereafter. And who was in charge of that but Paul himself? It was Paul who ultimately drove them out of Jerusalem and over to Caesarea to plant and to cultivate these very congregations he now visits. Chapter 8 of Acts, verses 1 through 3. Saul approved of their killing him, Stephen. And that day a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen. But Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women, and he committed them to prison. Chapter 21, verse 8. We went into the house of Philip the evangelist and stayed with him. In chapter 8, Paul's going house to house, taking women, children, men, and putting them in prison. In chapter 21, verse 8, he's back in Philip's home, welcomed as Philip hosts he and the other believers. You know, I've had neighbors who held lifelong grudges over music being played too loud. 
I've seen people not talk to one another again because they uttered something wrong or off-color to one of their children that one time, or maybe they just looked at them wrong and they were never friends again. And here's Paul knocking on Philip's door and Philip welcoming this once persecutor of his people who drove them out of their homes and to where they are now. It's this reversal of of great magnitude with an incredibly ironic twist as Paul is hosted by Philip shortly before making his own return to Jerusalem to be persecuted and imprisoned himself under what charges? The same charges they were bringing against Stephen and his people for being Hellenist believers. Now maybe Philip took a little solace in the fact that Paul is getting or going to get a taste of his own medicine. But what a moving turnaround to see Paul enter Philip's house. Timothy Johnson points out that by enmeshing Paul with Philip, Luke reminds the reader that Paul and this narrative are completing a full circle. His trip to Jerusalem isn't just a trip to a geographical place. It's a return to a a narrative place that's for Paul filled with the memories and possibilities of conflict. So you wonder, how can a man go from place to place, city to city, and be told at every stop, don't go there, bad things are waiting for you? How can you hear that again and again and carry on in this hopefulness that God is leading you there and that faithfulness to God is going to be worth it no matter what the cost? At least part of the reason is because we're talking about someone who watched the stones end Stephen's life thinking that he was putting a problem to bed. Only to see that persecution launch the gospel into the outer regions of Judea and become one of the the greatest spreading moments of the very gospel he now preaches. How can the trouble in Jerusalem possibly be good, all the others think? But maybe Paul knows, remembers, that the Acts story seems to remind us that in the face of great persecution and terror, the light and life of Jesus Christ has spread and shined its brightest. It was terror and persecution in Jerusalem that sent them to the ends of the earth. Maybe that's why Paul knows that whatever the cost in Jerusalem is, it will be worth it. And so staying with Philip, he presses on toward that goal. And we get more interesting information about Philip. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. A significant observation here in in this chapter, there were women in the early church who were recognized as having the gift of prophecy. In his gospel, Luke mentions Anna, actually, who was a a prophetess who foretold the future about infant Jesus in Luke 2. Peter in his Pentecost sermon pointed to prophesying of daughters as a sign of the gift of the Spirit in the last days. And in this instance, the prophecy was delivered by Agabus. Now Agabus had previously showed up in Acts back in chapter 11. He prophesied that a famine was coming to Judea and so they took up a collection in the Antioch church. And here, another prophecy from Agabus. In verse 11, he came to us and took Paul's belt 
bound his own feet and hands with it and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is the way the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And when, he, and when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Another plea not to do this, a symbolic act of prophecy, much like the Old Testament prophets. It was Ezekiel who took a brick and declared, this is Jerusalem. And what happens to this brick happens to the city. Isaiah walked around naked and barefoot as a sign of what was going to happen to people as they go off into exile. Jeremiah smashes a pot and and knows that somehow this points to the judgment that's soon to fall on the people. It's what prophets do. They act out these signposts, these markers that point us to God's future. And Agabus, much like these others, has this dramatic display. He took Paul's belt and the long cloth that was wound several times around his waist and he binds his hands and his feet. And just like the Old Testament prophet, he gave the interpretation of the act with the, with the usual Thus says the Lord introduction. The act sets itself into motion. The event is foretold. It's not just an object lesson or an illustration. No, it's the certainty that it would occur. In fact, Luke even includes himself in this we section, as I mentioned, as among those who begged the apostle to abandon his plans. I'm reminded that sometimes well-meaning Christian friends can still give bad advice. Now, if you've got your own way and a bunch of your best God-fearing Christian friends are telling you a different way, I'd encourage you to listen to them. If you're one in a hundred, you might be wrong. But every now and then, every now and then, even our wisest companions and best friends don't know what the Spirit might be leading us to do and Paul leans on that spirit, the will of God that's been revealed to him. And he convinces them all. Answering in verse 13, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Did I mention he knew the impact that might have? That he's seen a martyrdom, even before he was a believer. Verse 14, since he would not be persuaded, we remain silent except to say, the Lord's will be done. The will of the Lord be done. Words that echo Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane are part of why this is called Paul's Gethsemane by many people. He too didn't relish facing the human agony. Neither did Jesus on the cross. But nonetheless, he committed himself wholly to God's purpose for him. Not my will, but yours be done, they prayed together. And so he continues on in his journey, despite these many who keep persuading him otherwise. And so after these days, we got ready and we started to go up to Jerusalem Some of the disciples from Caesarea came along and brought us to the house of Mason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to stay. 
Those were 64 final miles from Caesarea to Jerusalem, a final leg. They probably used uh, pack animals, knowing the amount of money they were carrying with them from the Gentile churches. It would have been a considerable group making the trip by this point. We've got Paul and Luke and those delegated by the churches to bear the collection they were taking back in chapter 20. And some of the Caesarean Christians, we're told here in verse 16, were with them. And once in Jerusalem, the Caesareans led them to the house of a disciple named Mason, who was to be their lodging. And with that, Paul's third missionary journey was complete. He had arrived at Jerusalem in a home for lodging. And while his third missionary journey ends there, they had reached Jerusalem. It's only the beginning of the events that would take place there. Acts 21, 17 through 26 is the witness before the Jews, the witness before the Jews. Paul arrives there in Jerusalem and he gets a mixed reception. On the one hand, he was warmly received by the brethren there, the other disciples, followers of the way. But there were also reservations. And they start to quickly unfold the next day when his traveling companions report to the elders of the Jerusalem church. Verse 18 says, The next day Paul went with us to visit James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they praised God. And then they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands of believers there are among the Jews, and they are all zealous for the law. They've been told about you, that you teach all the Jews living among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. And that you tell them not to circumcise their children or observe the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So the brethren, the elders there devise a plan. They come up with a plot to help Paul. They're going to have him complete this Nazarite ceremony. They're going to send him to the temple with four others who are going to help him prove to the community, the Jews there, to please them, appease their concern that he's not faithful to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to Moses's law. And so Paul does as they've asked. He's, he's not pushing the boundaries at all. In fact, he's as much a traditionalist as they are. The strategy is that he's going to go and take these Nazarite, Nazarite offerings and prove to them that he is Okay. Now as the plot unfolds, as he goes with these four men, he's, in, he's entrusted to pay for their offerings. It's not really clear what his role is other than to pay their expenses, but he's going to go with them on this ritual purification to qualify per, for participation in the complete ceremony of the four Nazarites that took place within the sacred place of the temple. And as they do, down in verse 26, Paul took them in, and the next day, having purified himself, he entered the temple with them, making public the completion of the days of purification when the sacrifice would be made for each of them. And if you thought the plot was going to work, there's no way it ever was. In fact, it's not clear if they ever intended for this to work. Because before the thing is even done, when the seven days were almost completed, 
Jews from Asia who had seen him in the temple stirred up the whole crowd. They seized him shouting, fellow Israelites, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against our people, our law and this place. More than that, he has actually brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. So there's the charge, the levy against them. Not only are they suspicious as they always have been, that Paul was not faithful enough to their law, that he was stretching it, taking them places they didn't want to go, moving their tradition away from itself. But more specifically, it says he has actually brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled his holy place. Historian Josephus describes the wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the holy place in the temple, the inner courts reserved for Jews alone. He says there was a stone balustrade three cubits high with four and a half feet about and of excellent workmanship. And in this, at regular intervals, he goes on to say, stood slabs giving warning, some in Greek, other in Latin characters of the law of purification, that no foreigner was permitted to enter the holy place. These have actually been dug up. Multiple of these signs have been found. One in 1871, another a number of years later. Roman authorities were so uh, conciliatory, so uh, in line with Jewish teaching on this matter, that they even ratified the death penalty for any Gentile, even a Roman citizen who was caught going beyond this balustrade, this barrier between the court of the Gentiles and the most holy place. So the charge against Paul now, because he's supposedly been seen together with Greeks in the city and took them to the holy place in the temple, is a crime punishable by death. The crime Paul was alleged to have committed was a capital offense, even by Roman law, one that could easily ignite the zeal of these pilgrims in the temple. Now, it's a little bit absurd to think that Paul, who on this very occasion was going out of his way to appease the Jewish leaders, would have taken Greeks into the court to ruin his own head in the process. These are trumped up charges with no basis. They're, they're not true. But when has that stopped a riot before? And Paul, as much as anyone knows that this is serious, that his life is in danger, he's led these kind of inquiries before. So they start shouting. And there's a little bit of maybe hyperbole here for Luke, but he wants us to get the point. People all over, verse 30, all the city was aroused. The people rushed together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. The doors were shut and they take him and change and some of the crowd shouted with one another. Verse 34, he could not learn the facts because of the uproar. He ordered him to be brought into the barracks and when Paul came to the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. And the crowd that followed kept shouting, away with him. Which are Greek words that literally just meant kill him already and here is Paul chained up brought to defend himself at the end of chapter 21 and Luke is making a very specific point he wants us to know that Paul is doing the Lord's will and that when you are faithful to God 
He is with you. That no matter the tests, no matter the trials, no matter the chains that are wrapped around Paul, he is without blame and without blemish and without a real accusation that can be brought against him. He has only pushed forth in advancing the gospel of God. And Paul himself will stand up before these people to defend himself in the next chapter. And you'll have to come along with us for that journey in the weeks to come as Paul recounts his own history of how God has brought him to this place. But for now, we rest assured in the fact that God is on the move. The gospel is moving around the world because of faithful people like Paul. And we're challenged to see and to walk alongside him and to see that no matter what trials lie in our way, we can say with Paul and with that crowd, the will of the Lord be done. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for all that you do, for your love for us, and that no matter what circumstances, hardship, or trials we face, we can pray your will be done in us. In Jesus' name, amen.